Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Michelle Carlo. I just yell, I like scream at the guy up the block and I go, hey, you just grabbed a 57-year-old ass. Your mama must be real proud. That and more. But before that, listen over at patreon.com slash risk. You know, we upload so much incredible bonus content. This week, the story that ends the episode is the one you just heard a clip from by Michelle Carlo. And Michelle told that story so well that I thought it would be really fun to have a conversation with her about how she did it. Because she did stuff in that story that I'm always trying to coach people how to do. So that's this week's bonus content, but there are hundreds of hours. I mean, I don't even know what the calculation is, but there's a whole archive. There's a legacy of other material over there at patreon.com slash risk. And, you know, we're an independent outfit here. We don't have that big, like, corporate money that allows for, you know, I mean, we have a staff and we have a lot of spinning plates to keep spinning here. (laughs) So we really do appreciate it so very much when our fans show their love and give us a little bit of financial support over there at patreon.com slash risk. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl & Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl & Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Make This Right. Three very different stories about people who found solutions to very tricky circumstances. Listen if you're anywhere near New York. I hope you come out on February 17th at 9.30 p.m. That is when we are back live on stage at Caveat in New York. It's 9.30 p.m. February 17th. Now, uh, that will also be live streamed. You can get tickets for in-person or the live stream at risk-show.com slash tour. We'll also be celebrating my birthday, which is the day before the show. And you know, for the longest time, people have suggested to me that I start a little uh, 
Amazon wish list, and I always felt like, I don't want to do that. I would feel kind of bad doing that. (laughs) But then this year, I realized, oh, I know something I wouldn't feel so bad putting on a wish list. Poetry. I have found over the past, I don't know how many months now, taking little breaks throughout the course of the day to just sit and kind of mindfully read a poem and then return to the day, it's kind of become like a self-care thing. And I've kind of become really interested in this art form. It gives me a chance to turn off the part of my brain that has to make sense of everything all the time. In that way, it's so different from storytelling. I mean, there is a lot of storytelling in poetry as well, but there's that ability to go into more of just the feel of things, you know, the essence of things. You can go into a more, I don't know, like almost hypnotic space in poems. And I've just been kind of falling in love with it for past several months and so yeah i uh if you look on my um facebook or my twitter or instagram i have a little link tree on my profiles you can go to the link tree and if you want to get me a book of poetry from my amazon wish list you are totally welcome to for my birthday or whenever i'm sure the list will be up there forever oh and and choose used i you know usually get books used because just as nice to think I might be looking at a page that someone else has read before, right? Anyway, I really, 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 really hope that my 52nd year (laughs) is healthier and happier and, I don't know, just better in various ways than the past couple. But I'm so, so grateful and so honored by all of you and all of our staff that we've been able to like put out such phenomenal episodes for the past couple of years in spite of everything. And here's another one that you're about to hear. In a little bit, we're going to hear from David Crabb, who is no stranger to any of you. He works on our staff. You can find him at davidcrabb.net. But before that, a story that was recorded at a Risk Live show in Los Angeles years ago. This is Sam Firestein with a story we call Stupid American. So uh, in July of 1997, I went to the Grand Canyon with my buddy Scott. And uh, one of the things we were amazed to uh, find when we were there was just how absolutely fucking deadly the Grand Canyon is. There's warning signs everywhere. If you hike without enough water, you will die. If you get too close to the edge, you're going to get blown off the edge of the canyon. Like everywhere, it's like death, death, death. And it turned out that like uh, 15 to 20 people die every year at the Grand Canyon. So all I can think to do is to mock it and I collapse laying dead in front of one of the warning signs. (laughs) And while Scott's getting a picture of me, this woman starts to scream because she thinks I'm really dead. (laughs) Which was all the kind of uh, encouragement that my very, very immature, broken, malformed decision-making process needed to then just declare... I'm going to get pictures of myself laying dead everywhere I go. (laughs) And I did. And nobody liked it. No, it was uh, uh, at Christmas that year. I went to New York, and I was at Rockefeller Center. Nobody thought it was funny. Like, nobody. Lots of families. Not one found it funny. And, uh, And the following December, I was in Maui. And uh, we were driving by, and I saw the Four Seasons. I went, let's stop in. And they really hated seeing me laying dead in their lobby, like, especially because I wasn't a guest. I'm just like a guy <laughs> off the beach laying dead in the lobby. And the thing was, though, back then, I really fed off of the more something upset you, 
the better it made me feel. Like I just like I really thrived on like upsetting people. And I've actually had to go back and apologize to a lot of people for my behavior. But back then it just I loved it and I kept going and going and doing it everywhere I went, including in August of 2000 Cairo, Egypt, Great Pyramid of Giza. And I'm standing there, and all I can think is, I got to get the picture. I got to get the picture. And most people would think, like, dude, that is such a bad idea. And they would be right. <laughs> it's a horrible idea. But there was a couple of things. Uh, one, it was a pre-9-11 world. It was a completely different society at that point. And it was almost forgivable to, like, walk around the world as, like, just an asshole. <laughs> Almost, but even more importantly was uh, the fact that if there was one thing that I'd really felt that I'd come to understand about the Egyptian people in the 12 hours that I'd been in country <laughs> was that they know comedy. <laughs> and I believed this, I truly believed it because a couple of hours earlier before I got to the pyramids, I was standing in downtown Cairo across the street from a theater and I was looking up at the marquee and I couldn't believe what I was looking at. Probably like one of the brightest shining moments from American history. I was looking up at a billboard of these giant caricatures of Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Vernon Jordan. Do you remember Vernon Jordan? What about Linda Tripp? Do you remember Linda Tripp? And towering above all of them was a giant caricature of Monica Lewinsky <laughs> in the Gap dress, complete with a presidential DNA stain in caricature form in Egypt. Hey, and, and I'm standing there, I can't believe what I'm looking at. And my guide, this guy Tamir, we were, he was great. We were about the same age, he was 26. And he's explaining to me, he goes, oh, it's a play. It is the biggest success in all of Egypt. Everybody, it's sold out for a year. It's a comedy called Clinton in the Blue Dress. <laughs> and I'm like, I flew halfway around the world to escape exactly this. Right? You don't go to Egypt to see that. And then and I've got Tamir, and he's like, oh, in Egypt, we think it is so funny. Your president, he makes the sex with a girl, and then he goes to criminal court on television. We think this is great. And, and he's just laughing his head off about it. So a couple of hours later, it's like, forgive me, but I'm just thinking, like, the Egyptian people love comedy. They get me. They're going to get me. Unlike in the United States, where everybody just looks at me with like, what the fuck are you doing? It's like that this is going to go over great. So I'm out there. And if you've never been to Cairo, if you've never been, like the city is built right up to the pyramids. It's like massive, massive, crazy city. It's like a map of Cairo would be kind of like if you were to drop a pile of spaghetti on the floor. Like that's what the city is like. It is just this monstrous, chaotic place. And it's built right up to the edge of the desert. And then there's the pyramids and massive emptiness of desert behind it. And the pyramids are stunning. They're absolutely breathtaking. The way that they're set out, like spatially across the landscape, they're like, it's mathematical perfection. And you've seen it in pictures, but it's even more striking in person. Like it just takes your breath away to see these things and liven up close. And all I can think is the only thing that'll make this better is me lying dead in the plaza. <laughs> And I said to Tamir, I go, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And I start explaining to him how I'm going to go lay dead out in the middle of the plaza. And I need him to take a picture. And he just gets really confused. And he looks at me like, what? No. And keep in mind, like, this is his job. Like, he's, he's not like a college kid on a summer gig. It's, he's a college graduate with a degree in history. He's a licensed guide. This is his job. Like, he takes hundreds and hundreds of people there a year. Like, he, this is his profession. And I got to believe that I'm probably the only person in his entire career that said, I'm going to go lay dead in the plaza, get my picture. And he goes, no, 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 it's a very bad idea. And I go, no, it's awesome. Trust me. <laughs> so I give him my camera and I take off and I run out into the middle of the plaza 
And it's the height of the tourist season, right? It's packed. It's like swarming with tourists. It's like every five minutes, another giant bus pulls up and 100 people get off. I mean, there's 1,000 people here, right? And I run out in the middle of the plaza and I just collapse like I've been shot. And I'm laying there and I'm thinking like, this is awesome. This is going to be the best picture I've ever gotten doing this. And then I hear like, I hear a lot of things like, and, and well, no, not voices. I don't mean that, but I just mean like, I hear like a commotion around me. Right. And I hear some running and I hear like some guys yelling in Arabic. And then I hear the sound of metal ratcheting. And those are two sounds you never want to hear together. And I just stop and I open my eyes and I look up and there are, uh, I'm, I'm looking at six fully automatic assault rifles pointed at me courtesy of the tourist police because in Egypt they have two kinds of police they have a regular police force and then they have the tourist police who are stationed at all the historical sites and they're there to protect anywhere there's tourists they have the tourist police there to protect the areas and they're looking down at me and they start yelling at me in Arabic and I'm frozen like if you've never stared at the wrong end of a gun it is the most horrifying thing and in my body it just I just shut down like I didn't, it was almost like a non-reaction. I just froze and I just started saying American, American, as if like, <laughs> I am, you know, I should have said Canadian, but you know, it's like, but, but I just, it was the only thing and it just came out like automatically and I slowly just opened my hands. And once I saw that I didn't have anything, one of the guys kicked my backpack away. And it was then that I could see Tamir out of the corner of my eye and he was still quite a ways away and I could see he was making that decision. Do I go help my client or do I just leave and go on about my life and fuck him? And uh, fortunately, he came over and he started talking to the police officers. And once he started talking to them, they then turned me over, frisked me, lifted me up. And then the next thing I know, we're being escorted out of the plaza at the pyramids, which... I don't understand what I've done that's so bad. I understand I'm kind of an asshole and I shouldn't have been doing this. But like, what did I do? Because I've got a cop on each side of me and then there's one in front and this guy's walking pissed. And you know walking pissed, right? It's like that guy, he's just stern and you can see it from behind. He's just fucking angry. And I'm going to Tamir. I'm like, what did I do? What did I do? And Tamir's just shaking me off like, no, 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 no. And we get out. There's like, across the plaza, there was like some buildings and there's bathrooms and something and we get behind that and the guy turns to Tamir and he starts yelling at him and he wants to know and Tamir says he wants to know what were we doing what were we doing and I said just apologize tell him it's, I'm sorry I'm sorry it's me it was a joke stupid I'm sorry and Tamir translates and as soon as he says joke this guy fucking explodes right he's just like ah! and just starts screaming ah! and I'm like oh my god oh my god what did I do and when I opened my mouth he just turned at me and started yelling at me in Arabic and I don't know what he's saying and I'm like and I'm horrified because I have done something horrible and I don't know what and Tamir is trying to translate but I'm just getting bits and pieces but I get enough I start hearing things like Luxor Jihad, terrorist, tourists, dead. And I got it. I knew exactly what he was talking about. The most important thing to the Egyptian economy is tourism. It brings in more foreign dollars than anything else. It employs more people in the country. And literally, it's like one and a half or almost 2% of the world's travel budget each year gets spent in Egypt. And if you want to overthrow the government, what you need to do is collapse the economy. And the way to collapse the economy, kill tourism. How do you kill tourism? You kill tourists. Three years earlier, 1997, in Luxor, it's the Luxor massacre, Islamic jihadists wanted to overthrow the government. And so they gunned down 62 tourists. There were Germans, Americans, Japanese, and a few other people. They just killed them, gunned them down. And that was when the government established the tourist police. And Luxor was the number two most popular place travel destination in Egypt. And now here I am three years later, <sighs> funny guy, lying dead in the middle of the number one reason why people travel to Egypt. And you know what looks really, really bad in headlines around the world? American 
Jewish American <laughs> shot to death by the tourist police in the middle of the pyramids, right? That doesn't play well for anybody, and this guy was pissed, and he wanted blood, and I couldn't blame him. I really couldn't blame him, but it was all my fault, and what can I do? And so, and, but he's yelling at Tamir, and he's just terrorizing this poor guy, and then Tamir, he's stricken, and he goes, he wants my license. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I've been in country like 13 hours at this point, and I'm already like causing an international incident, and I'm going to get this guy's license pulled away from me, from him. And the thing is, it's like, this isn't outside of like how I used to behave in the world, right? Just a little backstory on me. The first concert I ever went to when I was a little kid, when I was like 13, 14 years old, out of the 500 kids that were there, there was only one who needed an ambulance me and uh it lasted and it, there was a lawsuit that came as a result of what happened and then they put out an age restriction for everybody like i left the house once and i ruined it for everybody so like this was not uncommon for me but poor to me and th but this was like a whole new step up like police and guns and this thing and so i just jumped in front of tamir and i said no no, me, 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 me. It was me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Me. It's just stupid. And I didn't know how much English, if any English, this guy knew, but I just start going, it's me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Stupid, 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 stupid American, just stupid fucking American, stupid American, stupid American. And, and I could see like something about that appealed to him. Like he loved, and I caught it. So I just then I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going with this. And I drop down to my knees, and I'm like, and I'm just begging the guy, please, 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 no, stupid, I'm an idiot. I'm like, I'm selling it as hard as I can because I have to do whatever I can to protect Tamir, right? This poor guy, he can't fight the cops, and he can't lose his license. But I don't care what happens. I I gotta try to beg this right. And I just keep going and going. And then finally, it's like, I don't know if it was just I wore the guy down or what, or he just loved watching me beg and grovel. But after a while, he took a step back and he just looked at me and he went, get up, like one of those things. And I stood up and he, and he just glaring at me. He had that cop glare. I don't care where in the world you are. The cops, they just, they all go to cops stare at you, school. <laughs> and it sucks. And he's just glaring at me, and then he leans in, and I'm like scared, and I lean in, and he just, and he, I used to smoke, and I had cigarettes in my pocket, and he grabs my cigarettes, he goes, fuck, and like just, he's, whatever the Egyptian is for get the fuck out of here is what he said, and we took off, right? And we leave, and we just do that like quick walk to get out of there. Tamir and I, we get to the car, we get in the car, we start taking off, and, I, and I'm apologizing, right? I'm just like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and he just doesn't want to hear it, and I can't blame him. But then there's also a part of me that it's like, I got to know. I got to know. After all that, I got, like, was it worth it? Like, I got to know. And I'm like, don't ask. Don't ask. <laughs> but of course I did, right? I go, did you get the picture? And he goes, yes, I got the picture. <laughs> And he did, but it was like several weeks before I was back in the United States and before I could get the film developed and uh, film, remember? And uh, it's a history lesson tonight. And, uh, and it was a terrible picture. I'm like this tiny dot. Like there's like no, it's horrible. It, and there's no context. Like at the Grand Canyon, it worked because I was next to this warning sign with the skull and crossbones on it that said, you're going to die. Like here, it was nothing. It was stupid. Stupid. Like the whole thing was just stupid. Ugh. And I had four more days with Tamir after that. It was like he was my private guy. Like I was it for him. And so at the end of it, I gave him a huge tip, right? Because I could say as sorry as many times as I wanted, but really it was empty. You know, and if there was one thing that I've learned in my life of just terrible, terrible behavior, is that nothing will say sorry like money. And by the size of the tip he got, I was very, very sorry. Thank you. Say what you want about America, land of the free, home of the brave. We got some dumbass motherfuckers floating around this country. Dumbass motherfuckers, you know?
I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Stupid, 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 stupid American. Just stupid fucking American. Stupid American. Stupid American. I'm afraid of stupid Americans. Stupid Americans. I'm afraid of stupid Americans. When I was 15 years old, my guidance counselor accidentally outed me to my father. And it was a shock to my father. I don't know how. I drew Wonder Woman so much when I was little. I listened to Xanadu so many times in a row. But it was a shock. And at that point, I was a goth kid. I was literally sitting there with, like, black fingernails and a dog collar. Like, yeah, I'm gay. Um, And my dad, he seemed to accept it, but then he didn't. I don't know if any of you have come out and had this. And I had to come out to him, like, again and again. It was like gay Groundhog Day. It was just this endless... Lou, like for two years, still gay, dad, not changing. Now, over the years, I told my whole family, they all know that I'm gay, but there's one person that I haven't come out to, and it's my grandmother, Saucy. (laughs) Saucy's real name is Selma, but my little gay mouth morphed it into Saucy. Uh, um, (laughs) And it caught on. Everyone calls her Saucy now. Um, And it's really fitting. She is a little tiny woman with uh, bright snow white hair. She has these crystal blue eyes. Uh, she wears a bunch of really sort of like floral, tropical, colorful shirts. Those polyester slacks that, fft, 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 you know, when she walks. And then like really comfortable, like rubber soled, like nurse's shoes, like with a thick rubber. Like you'll never get electrocuted in these fucking shoes. Um, there's a thing about Saucy is that she's. Her mind's in a lot of places, you know? Like, if you go into her kitchen, she's got her advice columns, like her dear Abby, that she cuts out because she arranges those on the fridge. And then she has her other station. It's her stack of Globe magazines and examiners about, like, Bat Boy and stuff like that. She loves those. And then at the end of her table, um, she's from uh, San Antonio, Texas, and she has a pecan tree. So then she has her shucking station, where she just sort of shucks pecans all day. Um, And then she's always baking a shitload of pumpkin breads. Uh, She bakes them in these huge batches these tiny breads that she wraps and then she has a freezer in the garage dedicated just to the freezing and archiving of these pumpkin breads. Um, She defrosts them and gives them to people all the time and they're delicious but you never know like is this from 1993? Who can fucking say? It tastes delicious. So her mind is in a lot of places. Uh, I always remember um, there was one Christmas where she was wandering around the kitchen. She, she was making coffee and trying to keep people entertained and like, you know, refreshing crackers and cheese and pecans and pecans and pecans. And she walked to the table with this coffee and this big uh, container of sugar, meaning to lay them down. But instead, as she blathered onto us about something in the Globe magazine, she poured the entire carafe of coffee into the sugar. And at that point, my aunt leaned over and she said... I love your grandmother, but she is like a fart in a hot skillet. (laughs) Which, I don't know what it means, but if you met Saucy, you'd be like, yeah, that's right. Just kind of, like, I don't know. It's, It's like that. And I've always felt this really strong connection with my grandmother. When my dad and uh, my grandfather would go hunting, I would stare at her house. She would let me watch the Golden Girls, and then we would watch like a buttload of Quincy. She loved Quincy's back to back. And then uh, she would have her friend Polly come over. They would play Boggle, and she would get hammered on spiced rum and frescas. Um, and it was just a fun time. In spite of this feeling of connection with my grandmother, though, there's this thing about her in that she is... <sighs> She's like Texas racist in that sweet, charming way. There are people in, in my family who are generally, they're bigoted, for real bigoted. Saucy isn't. Saucy, I always remember, like, she says things like, um, I just went to Payless Shoes and the nicest chocolate woman helped me. Which is like... Sounds like you like her, but... Um, And then like four years ago, she got these new neighbors and she said, oh, David, the nicest people moved in across the street. They're Mexican. They can't help it. (laughs) Um, So so this this one trait of hers always had me sort of a little bit concerned about coming out to her. Now, a few months ago, I went home to visit and my dad and I took her to Jim's, her favorite diner where she knows all the cooks in the kitchen and they're Mexicans who work hard. She loves those hardworking Mexicans so much she brings them uh, just a whole bag of frozen pumpkin breads. Um, 
And she gave the pumpkin breads to all the people and she sat down and she started telling this story. She tells this story over and over again about Baby. That's this little deer that her mother found when she walked outside to use the bathroom, which always reminds me how old she is. She's going to be 90. That was just, you know, when mama went out in the front yard to use the bathroom, sure. Um, <laughs> and she tripped on this little baby deer and they raised the deer and on the front porch and da-da-da. And she goes on and on. And whenever she starts telling this story, it's one of my like go-to-my-iPhone stories. Like when under the table, I'm like, what are people Instagramming from New York? Oh yeah, the deer. Mm-hmm. And I don't pay attention. And after this loop of telling the story over and over again, we're leaving the restaurant and she says, so David, where are you living now? And I'm like, I live in New York. I've lived in New York since 1999. And it concerns me, but I just kind of let it go. Over the, the next few months, she started to get really ill and forgetful. They decided to put her in an assisted living community. And when she was there, she fell off the bed one night and she broke her back. She had to get a series of surgeries and then they put her in a full care facility And when she got there, they said she had uh, Alzheimer's and was deteriorating very quickly. So my dad is telling me all of this long distance, and I I keep telling myself that I'm prepared to visit her. I've seen away from her the horrible, terrifying Julie Christie movie that makes me sob every time. I was like, I understand Alzheimer's. I'm going to be fine. So a couple months ago, I visit Texas, and my dad says, we're going to go to the nursing home. And we drive out to Hondo, Texas, this little town, and we get there. And the first thing you see is a gate. And outside of the gate, there is like a silver number pad, like from an 80s payphone, um, written on it, 0429, like the password to get in. And even from the inside, you would be able to look through the bars and just reach and push the buttons. And I'm like, if this is the thing that keeps the people that live here inside, we're about to really deal with some special people. Do you know what I'm saying? We walk inside and my dad immediately uh, says, I have to go to the bathroom. If you just walk, it's a U-shaped hallway and follow it around. Now, I don't know if the people that design these places design them intentionally to be like increasingly harrowing like halls of horrors, (laughs) but it was like that because when I walked in, the first people I saw were the charming older women with walkers and chili pepper earrings saying, it's a beautiful morning. You know, like those women, they're all there, just happy to be alive. (laughs) And then a little bit further, and there's a guy in a wheelchair, smiling. He's an eye patch. I think he winks at me. It's hard to tell. I get the feeling he is. And then uh, a little bit further, there's some people in wheelchairs, but they're not really activated. They're sort of in park, just parked against the wall. And then you hit the people that are just in gowns, sort of pacing around. And at the end of this hallway, I see Saucy. But then when I get closer to her, I realize it's not saucy because this woman has sort of yellowed hair. She's wearing this tan shirt, and she's actually in a wheelchair. And as I get close, she looks up at me and she has these twinkling blue eyes and she just grabs for my shirt and she pulls it and she says, please get me out of here, David. I've been here since yesterday. And she'd been there for a few months at that point. And then she tells me that she needs to get home to Papa, who is my grandfather who died in 1997. So at this point, there is a Grand Prix exercise wheelchair team that literally like tears around in their wheelchairs racing and they need by. And I am struggling to A, not cry and B, figure out how to get a wheelchair out of park. And I finally get out of park and I take Saucy into her room and she starts just crying saying, please get me out of here. Please get me out of here. I need to get out of here. And right at that moment, my dad comes in and I say, dad, I have to go to the bathroom, which is code for I need to go out in the front yard and cry for just a little while alone. I tear through the hall of horrors in reverse and I get out into the front yard of this old age home and I like ugly cry, like Julianne Moore cry, like really mucusy, <laughs> like pinch face, like full on sob. And I take out my phone and I call my fiance and I want to tell him something, but I just say, hey, man, and you're going in a wheelchair egg. And there's words in there somewhere, maybe. And he lets me cry out and he says, David, calm down. Just go inside. Be with sauce. You're going to be fine. So I hang up the phone and I walk back through. And the minute I walk into Saucy's room, my dad sees me and says, I need to use the bathroom, which I think is code. I want to be like, just go cry in the front yard. It'll make you feel a little bit better. And he leaves. And as I'm with Saucy, she's still muttering and she's grinding this comb against her leg in her wheelchair. And, you know, people talk about being in car accidents and how there's that moment of pure terror where it's like a whiteout and everything's like really calm and serene and slow motion. And I think I had that emotionally. Because all of a sudden I had this thought, this is the perfect time to come out to Saucy. Now hear me out. There's two options, all right? One, Saucy, I'm gay. The rest of the family knows. And I think that it's time that I tell you. And she says, you are a sinner and I can't believe you would do that. And you need to go to church and repent and get out of my room. At which point I get out of her room and then I come back in five minutes later and she says, David, it's so good to see you, honey. (laughs) 
just dry erase it away. Um, <clears throat> and then option two, saucy. I think you should know I'm gay. The rest of my family knows. My dad knows. My friend from New York, who you like so much, is actually my fiance, and we're getting married next year. And she says, oh, sweetie, I love you so much. I'm so happy for you. Give me a hug. At which point, I realize that I get to give her that experience again and again and again. It's like the best gay groundhog day a woman could ever ask for, you know? So I turn and I look at her, and I approach the bed, and I sit down beside her, and I'm going to tell her. And for just a moment, it's silent. There's a man across the hall that stopped moaning. There's no sort of heartbeat emergency machine going off anywhere. It's just silent. And I look at her, and she's really grinding this comb into her leg. And as I go to speak, I realize that she's muttering. She's been saying something really quietly this whole time. And it occurs to me that at this point, Saucy is really not a vessel waiting to be filled with more information. Do you know what I mean? Like, she does not need anything else. She is not a sounding board. She needs to say something. So I take the comb and I put it down. And I take her hand and I say, Saucy, tell me about baby. And she says, oh, baby. One morning when I was six, my mama went out in the front yard and she tripped over a rock. But then she looked back and it wasn't a rock at all. It was a little baby deer. And you know, those little baby animals, once humans touch them, their parents reject them. So we knew we had to take this little baby in. So we raised this little deer on our porch. And she got bigger and bigger. She was just like a little dog. I remember curling up with her in the summertime. And then when she got really, really big, she could put her head through the kitchen window. And I would feed her scraps when my mama wasn't looking. Oh, it would make my mama so mad. I love that deer. And in that moment, listening to her tell that story, I thought about all the times I use it as an excuse to check my phone, and I felt really bad because in that moment, I think I could have heard her tell that story again and again in a loop forever and ever. Thank you. This is Risk. This is Steely Dan behind me now. And we just heard from David Crabb. Listen, David is in the Sunday company of the Groundlings in Los Angeles. So check them out if you are anywhere near L.A. And the Risk live show produced by David Crabb out there will return. (laughs) The Risk live show in Los Angeles, will finally return on March 15th. Come on out, Los Angeles. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com tour. It's going to be at Hotel Cafe, March 15th at 7 p.m. And before David Crabb, we heard a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. 
you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash recommend today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Now, our final story on this week's episode comes to us from another favorite among Risk storytellers, Michelle Carlo. Like I was saying, I want to do a little uh, Patreon check-in with Michelle to talk about this story in case you want to hear anything about how the story was created, what the coaching process was like, and all sorts of other stuff. You can find Michelle at michellecarlo.com. You can also find her memoir, Fish Out of Agua, wherever books are sold. So without further ado, here she is now. This is Michelle Carlo with a story we call 45 Years. If I can say that there has been any kind of silver lining to this time in our lives, this awful period that I called Conyo Carajo, it's that I haven't had my ass grabbed by a stranger in over 16 months. Let me explain. I've always had a very complicated relationship with the body part that you would call the behind, the rear end, the ass, or as my proud and sometimes loud Puerto Rican family would call, because we have five different words for it, culo, fundillo, nalgas, chicho, and delicioso. <laughs> no, that last one was a joke. But, you know, well, you might say, well, no, Michelle, it's just another body part. To you, your rear end is a body part. But for me, it's always been a body party. One that I have been apparently hosting without my consent for far too long. 45 years. That's longer than a lot of people listening have been alive. It started when I was 15, and I just kind of magically transformed 
from this awkward, slightly chubby teenager to an awkward teenager whose chubbiness kind of somehow miraculously migrated down just the right distance and produced what even my most critical titi, auntie, called coño. That's the finest pair of nalgas in the entire familia. And, you know, my, my titi told me, you know, you have to quit out now. You have to be careful. You have to watch out. And I didn't really understand what she meant until the day at school, two boys grabbed me from behind in the staircase and pushed me against the wall and they took their turns grabbing me. And, you know, I fought back because like, yeah, I'm from the Bronx, you know, I can, yeah, I'm fighting back. But like when I finally broke free of them and I turned around, I'm pushing them. They just like start laughing at me and they go, whoa, nice ass, ugly face. This was the first time that I ever felt that my body didn't belong to me and that somebody else could just come in and just take whatever they want at any time. I knew that this had happened to other women before because I heard women in my family or girls that I knew talk about it. But this was the first time that it ever happened to me. And the only person that I told was my titi, that auntie. And she said to me, well, now that you're a woman, you have to quit out. You, you have to watch over yourself. And I really didn't know what that meant, you know, because it, it didn't happen like every day or every week or even every month. But you never knew when out of nowhere these hands would like strike you, like attack you like, like, like a rattlesnake. So I learned that if I couldn't put like a shield around my body, I would just put a shield around my mind to like help myself cope with the next time some guy or boy decided that he wanted to grab me. So now I'm 35 and I'm trying to be an actress, which means that I also think that I have to be a waitress. So I get a job at a friend's restaurant in the East Village and I never had done this before and I'm waiting tables, a small Italian restaurant and it was very family run and very cozy and very really cool and everything was fine until one day this group comes in they're celebrating a birthday it's a group of guys and they were like these you know like these wall street like masters of the universe type of guys you know like wolf of wall street like those kind of people and they were celebrating the 30th birthday of one of them and they were all very drunk and very disorderly and just like all over the place and i i'm taking the order and i right away like my spidey sense starts and i'm like i have to beware a birthday boy because he had decided that i was on the menu And like, no matter how many times I tried to deflect or tried to make a joke or tried to like, you know, twist out of the way, he kept trying to grab at me. And his friends were even just like, dude, leave her alone. Like, like what? And then like, you know, I kept trying, like, you know, smiling because, you know, the customer is always right and the server is here to serve. And, and then when I went to serve the entree, he just sticks his hand right up my skirt and latches on. And homeboy needed a manicure, okay, because his fingernails were not trimmed and they left the welt. And I didn't even think, I reacted. I just put down that plate of, I remember what it was, Linguini Fra Diablo. Boom, right over his head. And then it was like, whoa, 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 what's going on? What's going on? And they're like, oh my God, well, we're so sorry, we're so sorry. And, and the guy is like, I'm going to have you fired. And then, you know, the boss comes and then it's like, well, you know, Michelle, yes, you were right, but you're wrong. You can't be breaking plates of Linguini over somebody's head. So they got their meal comped and... um Even though I had a $200 tip left for me, which was nice money in the 90s, I had to find a job because the customer's always right and the server is there to serve. And um, it doesn't matter whether you're wearing jeans or a skirt or sweatpants, it's going to happen. And it's going to happen again. Like it did on the subway where I'm on a very crowded train and I'm just being rubbed against by this dude. And he's just like rubbing and rubbing and rubbing himself against me. And I'm just like so disgusted. And I'm like, what can I do to get out of this situation? Because I can't move. So finally I managed to turn around and I say to the dude in a joking sweet voice, I was like, hey, mister, if you get any closer to me, you're going to have to marry me. And the people that were around earshot of me started giggling and laughing. And the guy that was the perpetrator just like stiffened up and he got off the train at the next stop. And um, I realized that that was the only way that I could have dealt with that situation was to diffuse it by humor, you know, letting him save face so like he wouldn't retaliate by bashing in mine. And then it's this beautiful, warm evening in 2019. 
it's like the time of year when spring is turning towards summer. And it's the first day that you can go outside without a jacket at night. And an old friend of mine from the 90s happened to be in town, not the Wolf of Wall Street crowd, <laughs> not the restaurant crowd, but an old friend of mine from the 90s from performing happened to be in town. And a bunch of us went to this bar in the East Village to, you know, to hang out and drink and reminisce and catch up and blah, blah, blah. And as we're leaving the bar, we start having the Puerto Rican goodbye in the doorway. You know what the Puerto Rican goodbye is, right? The Puerto Rican goodbye is when all the things that you could have or should have said for the two and a half hours you've been together now need to be said for the next 20 minutes in the doorway, blocking anyone from coming out or going in. And we're just all in the doorway, hanging out and talking. And I remember my back was towards the street. And all of a sudden, I feel not one, but both of my butt cheeks just latched onto, like mauled, like mauled. And like all my friends saw it and we all go like, <sighs> and then, you know, the grip is released and I turn around and I see this young man who looks like any number of fine, upstanding young men who go to, I don't know, Columbia or NYU or Cooper Union or something like that. He's running up the block towards another two guys and they're laughing at me, you know? And I was just like, what? Like this hadn't happened to me for a really long time. And I, I thought, well, maybe, you know, I'm middle-aged now. Maybe I've just become this invisible woman and, like, guys don't look at that part of me anymore. Fine with me, right? But here it is in broad daylight or rather twilight. And I just was, like, so furious and fed up with this. I just yelled. I, like, scream at the guy up the block. And I go, hey, you just grabbed a 57-year-old ass. Your mama must be real proud. And then the friends who had been laughing at me they start laughing at him and he stops and he just like looks at his hands as if they were branded like Lady Macbeth. But then one of my friends says to me, well, Michelle, at least you still got it. And I was like, got it? Got what? And then she goes, well, Michelle, no one's ever grabbed my ass. And then a couple of months after that, I had an eye doctor appointment. I had just been diagnosed with glaucoma because middle age, but luckily it's early stage and very treatable and it's never has never gotten any worse. But this is when I first got diagnosed and I had to go in for this mega eye dilation test where they dilate your eyes like really like big and a lot and they shine all these lights in them and it hurts and they had warned me to bring really dark sunglasses for afterwards. And of course, you know, I have tests, everything is fine, you know. And I remember my boyfriend, when I had told him that um, I was going for this test, he said to me, well, do you want me to come with you? You know, just in case, make sure everything's okay. And I'm just like, no, nah, I'm going to be fine. They're going to shine lights in my eyes. I'll be like I'm tripping again, only I won't have, be hallucinating. I said, it'll be fine. Only it's really not fine because when I get out of the test, I realize I forgot to bring the dark, dark sunglasses. And the only ones I have have like these rose-tinted lenses. And it's like noon, so it's really bright, bright, bright sun with no shadows. And my eyes are hurting. They're like, oh, I can't open them. I'm like, oh, oh, I can't see, I can't see, I can't see. And I'm like, okay, well, I can't go to work right now. So I call my job and I go, you know, well, the test was delayed. I'll be in an hour. I figured an hour, I'll, I'll be fine. And then I'm like, well, what am I going to do for an hour? And I'm like, oh, wait, there's a Trader Joe nearby. It's a Trader Joe a couple of blocks away. Go buy some cat food or something. Great. And as I start walking, I hear... Like, again, spider sense goes off. And I hear that there's somebody behind me in lockstep. And I'm just like, fuck, fuck. And then I hear, mommy, hot mommy. Hi, mommy. Ooh, somebody's looking fine today. And I was just like, no, no, not today. No, no, not today. Damn it, damn it. And I'm just like, okay, shield goes on, right? And I'm like, just don't turn around. Don't engage. Don't say anything. Just walk, 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 walk real fast. You know, like the New Yorker that I am. And just get away from him. Just get away, get away, get away. So I'm walking, but this person is still right behind me. Mommy, mommy, turn around so I could see if your face is as nice as that ass. And I'm like, what? Am I in ninth grade again? Is this one of the guys from the stairwell? No, no, it's not possible. Not possible. So I'm like, now I'm just like all discombobulated. And I'm just like, I just got to get away from this guy. I got to get away. And 
mommy, mommy, mommy. And I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm walking. And I make the turn on 6th Avenue. And I'm walking, walking. And I can still feel this dude is right behind me. And he's going, mommy, come on, turn around. Mommy, you're looking so nice, mommy. And I run into Trader Joe. And the guy is still running in there with me. And he's like, come on, mommy, turn around. Come on. And I just grab the first thing that I can see and find, which is a big bunch of bananas. And I wheel around. And I'm just like going to turn this man's face into banana pudding. And I go, And I see it's my boyfriend. It's my boyfriend. My loving, supporting, awesome partner who figured that even though I said I didn't need him to be with me anyway, he thought that he would take the morning off work and make sure anyway. So he was across the street at the Michaels shopping because he's he makes animated films and he's crafting. He's always making some kind of film set. So he just made sure that he was outside of the building where the uh, eye doctor was at 12 o'clock where I would be leaving. So he makes sure I was okay. And he thought it would just be fun to just play with me, which at any time would have been fine, but now we're in Trader Joe's and it's not fine because everybody is staring at us. So I say out loud to everyone and no one in particular, hi, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. Only it's not, right? Because I kind of like squished the hell out of the bananas. I think I still owe Trader Joe a dollar eighty-nine. I think, shh, don't tell them, banana pudding. So I put the bananas back and then, you know, my boyfriend he's like looking at me like so hurt and so confused and you know I say let's go outside we need to talk so we we go outside to Trader Joe and it's like you know on the sidewalk with the lunchtime crowd going around and of course my eyes are now magically fine I guess all that adrenaline just like like cured him or something and he goes to me Michelle I was only playing and I'm like I know I know you were only playing at any other time it would have been fine I would have turned around and would have made a joke out of it. We could have done like this whole role play thing and I could have let him grab my ass and whatever. Cause you know, we're together, right? But no, not this day. I was like feeling vulnerable and distracted and, and thinking that the guy from ninth grade had come back to me or something. And I was like, you can't do that. And I, and I, I go on and I explain to him more that every day since the age of 15, I have had to put on an invisible shield around me because I never know. I never know when I leave my house, is it going to be this staircase, this street, this subway car, this doorway, this wherever, that I'm going to lose a little piece of myself? And then I say to him, you have a daughter. She's going to be 30. You think this never happened to her? You think she doesn't have her own shield too? And he got it. He got it. My God, he got it. I could tell. I could tell that he got it, you know? And if a late 50s, Queens born and bred, French white guy, rock and roll, old school East Village dude can get it. Why can't everyone, you know? So everything's fine. He walks me to the subway. I'm going to go back to work. He's going to go back to work. And I'm about to go down the stairs. I stick my colito out a little playfully and I say, you want to grab for the road, papi? And he goes, are you sure? And I'm like, well, yeah, it's okay. It's consent. That's all it is. It's all about consent, isn't it? It's context and it's consent. So yeah, I do have an ass. I've been told it's a pretty nice one. Hey, it's functional. It keeps me standing upright and dancing. Makes some of my clothes look nice. But you know what? When all is said and done, that colito is mine. You hear me?
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is First Choice behind me now, and we just heard from Michelle Carlo, who you can find at michellecarlo.com. Now, don't forget, there's a Risk Live show in New York City on February 17th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, and... There's a Risk Live show in Los Angeles on March 15th at 7 p.m. And you can get tickets for either at risk-show.com slash tour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Folks, the Story Studio is where all of our training can be found. You heard David Crabb on this week's episode. He is one of our faculty members at thestorystudio.org. You can also hire me for storytelling training. I am currently doing story coaching for a phenomenal show that Jude Trader Wolf is premiering at the Crane Theater for five performances starting on February 17th. I highly recommend it. It's called Human Flailings as a part of the Frigid Festival. And anyway, uh, I can be found, my own storytelling training, at kevinallison.com. You can also look me up. Uh, my socials are on Twitter and Instagram. At the Kevin Allison. You can look up Risk at risk-show.com or our socials on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are at Risk Show. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I'm a person too, Pop. God damn it. I'm a person too. You're a moron. Okay. The best man, everybody. Best man. The better man. <laughs> You're a moron. Uh, You're an idiot. He's a shrimp boat. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Stupid fucking American. Stupid American. God, you're so stupid. You're a genius. He's a moron. Stupid, stupid, stupid. I'm a fucking idiot. Okay, 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 let's stop with the name calling. I'm a fucking idiot! I'm a fucking idiot! What a mess. All from name calling. See how calling someone names can make them feel hurt and embarrassed and angry? 